Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. I absolutely love board games. Call me a nerd if you want, but I love the strategy games where you have to think and uh, that probably take a little bit too long to play. You know those kind of games. And and here's the thing. I'm a little bit competitive, just a little bit. I like like to win. I, I know people say that you should play games for fun, but what I found is it's way more fun to win. And so I have a little bit of a competitive edge to me when I play board games. Not the kind where you like flip over the board if you lose, but just, I wanna win. Is anybody with me? Well, we play Settlers of Catan a lot as a family and we used to do that too with my mom before she passed away. And my mom is one of the worst board game players of all time. I mean, if you know anything about Settlers of Catan, she would just pick the tile that was closest to her and build around that tile the entire time. And it was so frustrating. I mean, I'm like, mom, there's a strategy to this game. Like, you're not even trying to win. (laughs) And yet as I watched her play and played with her, I, I don't know that that's true because she seemed to have a better time playing than I did. For her, the game was all about people. The game was all about having fun. The game was all about family and and enjoying the time together. It it wasn't about winning. See, see, she flipped the script and she changed the game and it changed everything. You know, today we're continuing our series in the book of Daniel. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 8 and I'd invite you to turn there. And I think this is a chapter that is, um, like Emily Dickinson said, she said, tell the truth, but but tell it slant. And this is a chapter of apocalyptic literature in our Bible. It's here for a reason. But I think the reason is to cause us to say, maybe there's a better game. Maybe there's a, a different way to play this game that we call life. I think it's fitting that we're studying Daniel chapter 8 on the week of our national elections. I mean, Daniel 8 is about politics. It's not about the politics of one nation, though. It's about the politics of, of the globe and kingdoms and empires that collide. And in so many ways, Daniel chapter 8 is a political cartoon. It's a political critique of the nations and empires of the world. And they're depicted as, as animals. Now, don't worry, it's not a, an elephant and a donkey going at it. It's actually a ram and a goat. And we're going to see the way that their clash impacts not only them, but all the people around them. They're playing a game. And the question is, are we going to be the kind of people who play along? Or are we going to be the kind of people who flip the script? Daniel chapter 8, starting in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, And after that, which appeared to me at first. So this is his second vision that he's recording. And remember that if this is under King Belshazzar, this places us chronologically in Daniel between chapters four and five. 
Listen to what he writes. He said, I saw in the vision, and when I saw it, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Eule Canal. I raised my eyes, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. And it had two horns. Both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and he became great. So if you've been with us uh, over the last few weeks, you're going to see that once again, this beast in the dream symbolizes a kingdom. It's a brutal kingdom, a powerful kingdom, and it's a kingdom that's sweeping across the globe from west to north to south, and it's destroying all the other kingdoms in its pathway. And it says this in verse 4, that this king and this kingdom became great. Now, that term great, if you have your own Bible, I'd underline it because that's what this passage is really all about. That word is repeated eight times in this chapter alone. It's as though the beasts are just pounding their chest going, we're amazing, we're great, we're powerful. And in fact, I think the subtle message is that if you become great, you can do whatever you want. (laughs) And that's the game that the nations and empires of the world play. Listen to the way that Daniel continues in verse 5. He says, And as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Now, scholars uh, almost unanimously agree that this conspicuous horn is Alexander the Great. His reign came on quickly and it spread rapidly. Uh, He served as king of Macedonia from 336 to 323 BC. And during his time of leadership, he united Greece, he reestablished the Corinthian League, and he conquered the Persian Empire. And, And it was all by the age of 32. I mean, he was an an amazing military leader. Verse 6, he came to the ram with two horns, which I'd seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became great. And when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Now, if you know anything about Alexander, he rose quickly onto the scene and he died quickly. And his kingdom was split into four amongst four kings. These four horns in verse 8. And just as quickly as the ram rose to power, we see now a goat rising to power and doing the exact same thing, (laughs) trampling everything in its path. Now, if it feels to you like Daniel, and really the history books are on repeat, it's because they are. (laughs) 
This is the way of empire. This is the way of the world. This is the way that things work. One empire rises and they're powerful and they trample everybody underneath them. And then eventually they get overtaken by another empire that rises and is powerful and tramples the other empires underneath them and then is replaced by another and another. And so the story goes. It was Niccolo Machiavelli who roughly 500 years ago was quoted as saying, he was debating whether it is better to be feared or to be loved. And he said this, one should wish to be both, but because it's difficult to unite those in one person, it's much safer to be feared than it is to be loved. (laughs) Be the beast, be the, be the goat, be the ram. (laughs) And that's the story that history tells over and over and over again. Now, if you're wondering how this relates to Daniel chapter 7, this is essentially a zooming in of the second and third beast in Daniel chapter 7. We're just going a little bit deeper into those beasts with a little bit more detail, but they're telling a very similar story. And I think Daniel's receiving this vision and he records it because we're supposed to ask some questions about it. Here are a few of the questions that we should ask. What's the point? What's the point? One nation rises and falls, another takes its place and does the same thing. What's the point? Will it ever end? I think that's a good question. Will this cycle of retributive violence and empires rising and destroying and trampling, will it ever end? I think we're also supposed to ask, Is there a better way? Is there a better way to play this game that we call life? You see, and I think there's another question that we should ask, and it's where in the world are the people of God in the midst of all of this? In fact, that's what this book is about. It's chronicling Israel's history as a nation and their interaction with their God. Well, we'll locate the people of God in just a moment but they won't be depicted as a beast. In fact, they never are. See, in a world full of beasts, in a world full of power plays, in a world full of seeking of greatness, it's easy to get caught up in that game. But like my mom used to do with Settlers of Catan, you can play a different game. You can approach it differently. And here's what I'd invite you to write down. I think there's a danger that Daniel's pointing his finger on. And here's the danger. The greatest danger in our Christian life probably isn't losing our faith. It's synchronizing it to culture. It's, it's calling ourselves followers of Jesus, but just playing along with the same game that the quote-unquote world plays to combine, combine our faith with a pathway to power, to choose power over influence to use Jesus as a way to get ahead rather than a way to serve the people around us, to try to utilize faith faith as a way to upward mobility rather than downward mobility, to choose faith as a way to try to control our circumstances rather than surrendering. The year was 1948 when a TV show called Candid Camera came on television for the very first time. 
It was this TV show that was a hidden camera show. You've probably seen some of the episodes. One of the most famous episodes is entitled Face the Rear. And here's what they did. They waited for somebody to get onto an elevator. That person got onto the elevator and stood facing the elevator door like normal people do. And then three people got on and faced the back. And you could see this person getting uncomfortable, going like, what's the deal here? And then finally, one fourth person came on. They faced the back also. And the person who was the prank was being played on eventually turned around and faced the back themselves. It was this case study on the way that we typically try to fit into the circumstances around us. And I think as followers of Jesus, we do the same thing. We, we see the quest for power all around us. And it's so easy to give in and it's so easy to play that game. And what Daniel chapter 8 is saying subtly and slantly is there's a different way to play this game that we call life. I was thinking about it in a in a world of power plays and the quest for greatness commands like love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you can seem like death sentences I mean they can seem like a good recipe for getting absolutely trampled but but that's why it's important for us to remember what Jesus said in John chapter 18 verse 36 here's what he said my kingdom is not of this world if my kingdom were of this world my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews but my kingdom is not from this world world. And I think that very last sentence is translated just perfectly. It's not, his kingdom isn't from this world. It's not of the the same substance. It's not a, a kingdom that's made up by dominant beasts that destroy and trample. It's actually a kingdom that is epitomized by the sacrifice of of a lamb. And that's who we follow as followers of Jesus. And he's teaching us not how to be a beast, but how to be more fully human. That, that's the journey that God has you and I on as his followers. And so that's why it, it pains me to look back at some of our history as followers of Jesus. And things like the Crusades and the Inquisition, where we tried to emulate the beast and to be a bigger, badder beast. Uh, and it didn't work in a way that actually led to kingdom fruit. See, in the midst of power plays, greatness, and trampling, I think the question becomes, how do we, as the people of God, maintain our identity and resist synchronicity? Because remember, the greatest threat to our faith is not that we'd lose it, but that we'd synchronize it to the culture around us. And Daniel's going to dig in, and through his vision, I think he's subtly going to show us what that looks like. Let's jump down to verse 15. Here's what he said said, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, 
Understand, O son of man, that this vision is for the end of time. Actually, it's going to be the end of a certain time, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, and he touched me and made me stand up. And he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. That's the time. For it refers to an appointed time of the end. As for the ram you saw with two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. We already said that that's Alexander. I mean, this is very specific. <laughs> Uh, Daniel is receiving in this vision information that the kingdom that's going to come and destroy Babylon, the media Persian empire will eventually be taken down by Greece. Now that happened. The media Persian empire reigned from 539 BC until it was destroyed in 331 BC by the Greeks. (laughs) I mean, remarkable that Daniel would receive this specific of a prophecy and write it down. And in so many ways, it's so specific that it has split scholars for centuries. It really splits them into two categories. Those that say, that can't happen. So Daniel had to be written after those events. It had to be written after 167 at least, because Daniel couldn't have known these things. I don't happen to take that view of Daniel. I actually think that this was a prophecy that Daniel received well before it happened. I think that for a number of reasons, uh, not the least of which being that when they uncovered the Dead Sea Scrolls in cave number six, they found these exact verses that talked about the Grecians, that talked about the Media Persian Empire by name. I mean, just amazing. And most scholars would date those sometime in the third or second century BC. So, So before those things happened, it was written down and found there. But I think bigger than that, I just have this conviction that the scriptures aren't Man's thoughts about God. They're they're God's thoughts about man. The scripture is is a gift from God to you and to I so that we could know God. In fact, listen to the way that Peter writes about these scriptures, the the Bible. If If you have it right now, hold it because listen to what Peter writes about the Bible that you're holding. He said this, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which we do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing first of all that no prophecy, including that one in Daniel chapter 8, comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That word carried along is a word picture in the Greek, like a sail that is up and wind that comes along and pushes the boat across the sea. That's the picture. That's the picture. And Peter is writing to who we call elect exiles who are dispersed around uh, the Mediterranean and he is calling them to be people who have confidence in the scriptures, that they are the words of God. And so if we're going to be people who who don't synchronize our faith with the culture, who don't just play along with the power plays and the destruction and the trampling, we can't exchange, or I would just invite you to write this down, don't exchange your scriptural guide for cultural scripts, (laughs) for cultural narratives that are all around us. Now hold on to the truth that the Bible points to, that the scriptures point to. And here's what Peter would say. If you go back to that verse, he'd say, pay attention to it. 
Pay attention to it. In the Greek, that word, it has this picture, be devoted or, or fix your gaze. A few weeks ago, I had the chance to do a wedding officiate a wedding and uh, the couple was standing in front of me and uh, getting married and it was just this this picture of them looking at each other that captured my heart Uh, their gaze was fixed Uh, they were captured and captivated by each other and I think that's the picture Peter's painting for you and I to have with the scriptures pay attention to it. Do you have that kind of view in the midst of a culture that has a whole lot of narratives and scripts that are playing constantly about money, about sexuality, about power, about success? Did you know that the scriptures also point you in a direction? They tell a story also that's designed to help you align your life with the reality of the way that God designed you and I to live and you and I to thrive. And I can tell you this, friends, it is not the way of the beast. It's actually the way of the lamb. Peter goes on and he says, listen, pay attention to the scriptures as a light shining in the darkness. He's echoing Psalm 119 verse 105 that says, your word, O God, is a lamp unto my feet. See, you and I are called not just to admire the Bible, but to take action on it, to not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. So here's my question. When the cultural scripts and narratives conflict with the scriptural guidance, who do we default to? See, I think the temptation in in, in our cultural moment is to synchronize our faith with our culture. And so we would take what our cultural narratives and scripts are and try to force them into the scriptures. But friends, um, God's guidance is different for us. And I think if we're gonna be people who hold on to our faith and who flourish even amongst the beasts of our world today, we have got to be distinct. We can't, we can't turn around as it were, like they did in that elevator. We've gotta stand our ground. And part of standing our ground is having conviction that the scriptures are the authoritative word of God. I think that's a subtle message that Daniel gets because of the specificness of this prophecy. But there's a second message that he gets also, and it's found beginning in verse 9. Listen to what Daniel writes. He said, Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Now, this is from the goat uh, nation, which we know is Greece. It comes after Alexander, and out of those four horns, one uh, sort of down the line becomes great. His name is Anachias Epiphanes. And he absolutely wreaked havoc on Israel. We'll talk about it in just a moment. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. So some of the host and some of its stars were thrown to the ground and trampled on them. Now, this language about hosts and stars is symbolic of spiritual powers. This is a a spiritual battle that's taking place on the geography of earth. It became great. Even as great as the prince of the host and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. Uh, This ruler, Anakis Epiphanes, is is trying to muscle up and go face to face with God himself. In fact, the name Epiphanes, which Anakis gave to himself, means God manifest. (laughs) 
So, so I think a, a quick little history lesson about Anakias Epiphanes is in order here because the scriptures go into so much detail about his rulership. So he was about 170 BC that Anakias Epiphanes started to attack the Israelite people. In 167, he made Judaism illegal. And in that same year, he recruited Gentile priests to make sacrifices in the temple at Jerusalem. In fact, he slaughtered a pig on the altar in 167 BC, just absolutely desecrating the temple. He made circumcision illegal and he forbade them to practice the Sabbath. I mean, he was absolutely brutal in attacking the Israelite people. For some reason, and Daniel points this out, he set his eyes toward the glorious land, it says. But not only the glorious land, but toward the temple itself, toward their sanctuary, it says in Daniel chapter 8. So here's the question, why the temple and why the sanctuary and why attack worship? Well, see, this was a place that the people of God assembled. It was the place where they gathered to experience and encounter God's presence. It was the place where they experienced the forgiveness of their sin. To attack the temple was to attack the very heart of the Jewish faith. And Anakis Epiphanes knew that. See, he knew if he could stop their worship, he could probably erode their devotion. So will you write this down? Because this goes directly to the heart of synchronizing our faith with the culture around us. Don't abandon your worshiping identity for worldly idolatry. I think that's what Daniel 8 wants to raise up for us. The Anakias of Epiphanes went after that because he knew if he could take down their worship, he could take down their heart. Listen to the way that he did it. Verse 12, and the host will be given over to it together with regular burnt offering because of the transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Throw truth to the ground. The same thing is said in a little bit different way in verse 25, talking about the same time frame. Speaking of Anakis Epiphanes, it says, by his cunning, he will make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, he shall become great. Now, if that isn't indicative of somebody who names himself Epiphanes, God manifest, I don't know what is. Without warning, he shall destroy many. He shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. See, that, that last reference is a reference to the fact that Anakis Epiphanes got sick and died. He didn't die in battle and he wasn't taken down. He, he just got sick and died. It was this picture of the fragile nature of even the most powerful people in the world. Probably a picture that symbolizes they're playing the wrong game. But see, here's the thing that Anakis Epiphanes w- was addressing and tackling and confronting. Truth. He says, my goal is to trample truth and to, to, to lead people toward deceit. And see, one of the things we do when we worship is we reorient our hearts around what's true. The reality that there is a God in heaven and that it is not you and it's not me. So it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus teaches really clearly that the chief strategy of the enemy is to try to cause us to believe lies rather than 
truth. I mean, listen to what he said to the Pharisees as they were arguing about, about worship and about discipleship. Here's what he wrote. Here's what he said. You're of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. See, if deceit is the enemy's greatest tactic, then truth is our strongest defense friends. See, specifically, truth that pushes back against idolatry, against seeking our own greatness and to puff ourselves up and to live like, well, the beasts live. So let's try to apply this to our day and our time right now. I mean, we're going on eight or so months of COVID lockdown doesn't seem like there's a lot of end in sight when it comes to government regulations and uh, worshiping indoors with unlimited capacity. And in so many ways, I think our worship is, is under attack. And I don't necessarily mean that it's under political attack. I think the church is viewed as, a, as in a category of mass gatherings that we've seen be shut down. But I think the enemy loves that that we're not allowed to meet together in the way that we have been. And, and some of the statistics that I read are up to 30% of people who were attending church regularly before the COVID pandemic won't attend after. And so here's my question. What's going on in your soul when it comes to worship? What's going on in your, in your heart are you, are you passionate about Jesus? Even though we can't physically all be together in one spot, are you making it a priority to continue to worship with us on a weekly basis, even if it's, if it's online or, or maybe you're gathering with a small group or with family to watch and to encourage each other? I hope you're doing that. Or maybe you're attending live when we have on-campus services. We have four live on-campus services every single Sunday, weather permitting. And I hope you're fighting for your worship because in fighting for worship, you're fighting for the vitality of your very soul. And it happens together, but it also happens personally. You can make a playlist and just go on a walk in the morning. But friends, there is a reason the enemy wanted to attack worship. He knows if he can erode your worship, he can erode your devotion. And I wanna plead with you, fight, fight to be a person who passionately, vibrantly worships the King of Kings. It's one of the ways that we avoid synchronizing our faith with our culture. So like we said last week, worship is this subversive act where we push back against the beasts of the world and remember that the Son of Man, Jesus the Christ, is the ultimate ruler. But Daniel's vision doesn't end with the sanctuary being destroyed. Listen to the way it continues in verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is a vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot. 
And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. This is really interesting. For Daniel, this is probably good news and bad news. I mean, it's good news that the temple that had been destroyed in 587 would one day be rebuilt. So good news for him. But bad news that the cycle was going to repeat and that once again, they were going to be under attack from another nation. But the question that's asked in the heavenly realm is really, really interesting. The question is, how long? It's an interesting question because it's not the question that I would ask. It's not the question that I ask when I'm going through pain, when I'm going through heartache, when I have questions, when I'm wrestling with God. The question I ask God is, God, why? (laughs) Why am I going through this? God, why are you allowing this? If you're sovereign and you're powerful and you're loving and you're good, why am I walking through what I'm walking through? But the angels in heaven don't ask about the reason. They ask about the duration. How long are we going to have to put up with this? It's the same question that the psalmist would echo all throughout the Psalms. Listen to Psalm chapter 6, verse 3. My soul is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long, the psalmist writes. Psalm 74, verse 10. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff, is the enemy to revile your name forever? I mean, God, are you going to allow the enemy to seemingly win forever? How long are you going to let him win? And God says, no, 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 no. Not forever. The, The enemy won't win forever. And I think what... Daniel wants us to grapple with, what the Psalms want us to wrestle with, is that we can't be naive about evil. It must be faced. We can't blame God, but I think the right question is, God, okay, we want to walk with you. How long? How long? And here's what I want to invite you to write down. Don't forsake patient endurance for fatalistic despair. Don't forsake patient endurance for fatalistic despair. The evil that has its paralyzing grip on people is not wild. It's not uncontrollable. And what God would say is it has its limits. For the sanctuary, 2,300 days, roughly six years, which, by the way, is roughly the amount of time that Anakai's Epiphanes absolutely tormented the Israelite people. See, it's visions like Daniel's that free us to live because we know what's coming. We've talked about this over and over in the book of Daniel, but setting right expectations about the future is one of the things that allows us to flourish. If we think things are going to be easy and up and to the right and great all the time, it's going to be really, really difficult when challenges come our way. But if we're ready for them, we'll be able to navigate them. I'm reminded of uh, when I used to live in Colorado, um, Kelly and I would go whitewater rafting once every few years. And the guides in whitewater rafting want to prepare you for the rapids. (laughs) And they know they're coming. And so when they see the rapids coming, they'll say, rapid, rapid. And what you do is you pin your foot under the fold of the boat and you grab your oar and you get ready to paddle. I I almost sense God saying to Daniel, rapids are coming. Rapids, and they're going to come for a few hundred years. But don't lose sight of me in all this. I'm still with you, and I'm still powerful, and I still reign sovereign, and I'm still good. 
Listen to the way that Eugene Peterson, the great author and pastor, put it. Here's what he said. If we forget that the newspapers are footnotes to scripture and not the other way around, we will finally be afraid to get out of bed in the morning. Too many of us spend far too much time with the editorial page and not nearly enough time with prophetic vision. The meaning of the world is most accurately given to us by God's word. And that's exactly what God is doing for Daniel in this vision. He's freeing him to say, Daniel, it's not going to be easy, but Daniel, you and your people are going to make it. Don't synchronize your faith with the world. Don't turn towards fatalism and throw your arms up in the air and say, well, it's just always going to be like this. No, the people of God are distinctive in the fact that they endure patiently through the dark night of the soul, through doubts, through persecution, through trials, through hunger, through famine, through anguish, they persevere and walk faithfully with God. You see, and when we grow weary, isn't it true that when we grow weary, that's when we start to grab for power? That's when we start to do things in our own strength and grasp for control rather than live with surrender. It's the reason that in Galatians chapter 6 verse 9, Paul would write to the church and he would say, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. It's easier to do bad sometimes than it is to do good. It's easier to justify our responses than it is to turn the other cheek, and to actually live in the way of Jesus. See, here's my question for you. What game are you playing? Are you playing the game of of the beasts? Power up, trample those underneath you, get yours, build your name. Remember, Daniel's receiving this prophecy from Babylon, Babel, the place where people first tried to make their name great. And I think there's this question embedded in this prophetic text. What game are you playing? What chart, what course are you following? See, listen to verse 24, and I think this gives us a good summary of the beasts. It says, his power shall be great, but not by his own power. He shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. See, for the beasts, destruction is success. That's what verse 24 says. That, that's a theology of, of winning. Hashtag winning. It's beastly in nature. But friends, that is not our nature as followers of Jesus. We follow the lamb. We do not follow the beast. And it might do us well to name just how antithetical the way of Jesus is to the way of empires. See, for Jesus, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And Jesus, those who are great... <laughs> are the servants of all. Those who have power don't, don't lord it over people. They lift people. And those who are great are people who extend love. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. The, the beasts, the rams, and the goats will continue to wage war. In fact, Revelation chapter 17, verse 14 says, they will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Would you write this down, friends? Remember, the beasts are ultimately defeated through the sacrifice of the lamb. 
I'm reminded of the end of the movie Beauty and the Beast where Belle has left and she's been freed from the beast and she's gone home. But she feels pricked in her heart to go back and to rescue him. And she goes back, Belle does, and, and she extends love to the beast. And it's in that love that the beast is transformed, uh, becomes human once again. Friend, I, this is the power of the cross, transforming us from beasts into people who live in the way of the lamb. It's a different game. And in our season right now, in our week right now, I mean, I don't even know who won the election at this point in time when we're taping, but in our week right now, inevitably, we are in a season where the world desperately needs fewer beasts and more lambs. We need to be who God has called us to be as kingdom citizens, peacemakers, peacemakers. Did you know that peacemakers are only needed when there isn't peace? (laughs) When you have peace, you need peacekeepers. When you don't have peace, you need peacemakers. And I think that that practice of peacemaking might be the very way that we apply Daniel 8 in our cultural context today. So can I give you a challenge to be a peacemaker? Maybe you encourage somebody you disagree with. You listen to somebody that has a different point of view than you do. You pray for somebody that's on a different side of the aisle. You offer or you accept forgiveness. Now, I pray that you'll take that challenge. But one thing we must do, friends, we must commit to playing a different game. I I mean, remember this, remember that the greatest danger of our faith is not that we'd lose it, but that we'd synchronize it with our culture and just fit in with all of the beasts around us. No, let's hold true to scripture. Let's be passionate about worshiping Jesus. And let's run this race with endurance all the way to the end. Let's release the beasts that lie within. And let's receive the lamb who died for our sin. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this um, apocalyptic vision. For Daniel of a time that was coming a few hundred years down the road for his people. But for us, a a critique on the way that the world works, the way that the powers that be function. And Lord, I pray that you wouldn't help us, you, you would help us not to just fall in line with the way that culture often works, but that we would distinctly be people who become disciples of you, Jesus, learners, how to live in your way with your heart, in your kingdom, your kingdom that's not of this world, that's not beastly in nature, but that's the kingdom of the Lamb. Help us, Lord. We need your spirit to empower us and to guide us, we pray. Lord, thank you for today, for the chance to study and dig into your scriptures. We pray that we wouldn't just read it, but that it would read us, and that we wouldn't just hear it, but that we would be doers of your word. Help us be peacemakers today in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said together, amen, amen.
Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.